Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer, the host of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai, where we're going to talk about the Japanese concept of Ikigai or living a life of purpose. Here you're going to hear inspirational stories from all different types of people who are finding their own life of purpose. You're going to hear about how they found their Ikigai and what they do every day to live an integrated life. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai podcast. Uh, this is season three, and I am your host, Jennifer Shinkai, coming from the Shitamachi in Tokyo. I was going to say coming to you live. I'm live right now, but by the time you're listening to this, it won't be live. Uh, it will be recorded, and hopefully we are coming out just in time for a very important anniversary in my neighborhood. Um, which Adrian knows much more about than me, our guest today, which is the firebombing on March the 10th, 1945 of Tokyo. And Adrian tells all about that because he is an amazingly talented filmmaker who brought me to tears more than once uh, when I watched his documentary, Paper City, which premiered at Melbourne in 2021. It's screened theatrically in Japan and it's also screened in my local uh, civic centre, culture centre in uh, in the Shitamachi in Kyojima, well in Hikifune it was. And you've made a couple of other films as well, right? You Lessons from the Night, which was in Berlin, right? No, Sundance, my goodness, Sundance you premiered, amazing. And just amazing awards and he's also got a TEDx talk so you can find out more about uh, the story behind Paper City from his experience. But I invited Adrian today because, one, I was so moved by his film and I wanted to use my very small platform to give more people awareness of this important story, which I'll tell you what, Adrian, after I watched it, when I looked at all of the older people in my neighbourhood who maybe weren't alive when it happened, but their parents went through it, it just made me look at them in really a different way about like what that generational trauma was like, what this area has been through. Um, so thank you. Thank you for for that perspective. It was really, really powerful. And and so I, I invited it. Oh, go on. I was just going to say, <laughs> no, going. Good. Just uh, cut me. We've done the intro. Let's go. What do you think? I was just, <laughs> I mean, you know, it was 79 years ago, 1945. So if if you've seen, you know, old people in your neighbourhood who are as young as, uh, say, 82 or 83, mm. then they might have been alive at that time, you know, strapped to their mother's back, Yeah. you know, as she was running down the street to escape the flames. And I saw plenty of stories like that. So, yeah, as people that young may not remember it, but may have experienced it. Definitely. Yeah. Well, they were, you know, being being born into into families that had been through that, had lost so much, right, and were dealing with the aftermath as well. Um, yeah. 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 Absolutely. And it, it kind of <laughs> sorry to go straight into stuff, but no, I mean, let's do it. If you see, I mean, if you look at a the targeting of civilians right now in in for example in gaza then mm. you imagine how this plays out through generational trauma um you know and the 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 kids there that survive until they're 80 years old yeah you know 
how are those stories going to be passed on through generation and generation? And, you know, actually some of the images coming out of there remind me of very much some of the things I saw when I was making the film. I mean, the area that you live in, in East Tokyo, was absolutely wiped out. Yeah. Um, and you can see similar images now coming coming out of Gaza. So, mm. like, not just the, the death, but the, the levelling of whole parts of cities. Yeah. I got to find out something quite interesting about my neighbourhood park after after watching your film. Well, two, two of our neighbourhood parks. So one part was in your film talking about the park in Kinshjo, which is now in front of um, where the sports hall is. And that was actually a mass grave. <laughs> I didn't know. And then I found out that the park had a koen right near my house, which I think you also know. When they built the toilets, they found some bodies in in where the toilets are so i didn't know about this but all the kids all my kids knew about it because the haunted toilets of harakoa and are like famous like that story has has passed down through the generations the haunted toilet story came before people found the bodies no no so they oh, oh, after okay so as they were making it they found yeah. the bodies you know they're digging right, up right. in the area they found the bodies and then it's become this i don't know that the toilets are haunted but yeah, the story yeah, yeah. of the children has been passed down like to so my kids know about it and they were like, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, that's why we, we really don't like going in those toilets. Right. See, that's just a little bit of local folklore. Yeah. That, you know, people don't necessarily know is connected to this massive historical event. But exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no way that Tokyo can't be a city of ghosts if you think about this kind of, and, and many other places too. Mm. But if you think, yeah. Yeah, from this. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've got chills already. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so moving in, though, to, to our content for, for today and the, the things that I wanted to talk about, because when I originally approached you, you were like, yeah, yeah, sure, sounds good. And then we had a long period of silence. And you were like, well, we eventually talked, I think it was last week, and you said, I'm going through this big transition. It's not all sorted. I'm not quite sure where I am. Where, like when it comes to my ikigai and I've said to you please please come on because I think this is where so many people are in this searching in this trying to find something that is making it worth getting out of bed in the morning what is uh, something that makes you feel like your life has meaning so it's like I think this is a really beautiful uh, moment to capture as an archive for yourself as we talked about but also for other people to see and to feel seen, ah, this okay. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like this. I'm saying things like this. Okay, I'm not alone, and I'm totally normal. So I sort of want to normalize that through our conversation as well. So no pressure, no pressure to be totally vulnerable, and uh, and bring it in. Um, no pressure felt. No pressure. But first of all, I did want to talk about Paper City because you're originally from Australia, right? Yep. So. What what made you decide to tell the story of the Tokyo firebombing? How, how did it, this all happen? Yeah, well, because I grew up in Australia, I think our war history was mm. uh, very much, in a nutshell, about the, the, the good things the Allies did and the bad things right. our enemies did. It's yeah. not much more complicated than that. So the only thing I really knew about Japan's wartime experience was the awfulness of the imperial army and then the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm. which I'm sure every kid in the world 
grows up learning about. But I didn't know that there were, uh, you know, 60 plus other cities that were bombed. And it, mm. I, I saw this documentary called Fog of War by an American filmmaker, Errol Morris, which is a great film. And one particular sequence looks at the firebombing of Tokyo. And at the time, I'd already been living uh, in Japan for a few years, um, mm. in Tokyo for a few years. And the thing that struck me was that at, in this one night of US bombing, 100,000 people were killed. So first of all, that was, I mean, that number enough was kind of deeply shocking. Uh, yeah. It's it's the single biggest destructive act of war in terms of death in a single day. So and still, so, even now, yes, no, in, in no other attack in history of a hundred thousand people died in, mm. in the course of a day. And of course, you need modern warfare to get death on that scale. If people are fighting hand to hand, for example, yeah. so it had to be from planes. So that that was shocking enough the size of it. But I think the other thing that really got me was. For a city that had experienced such a huge attack and a huge trauma that there didn't seem to be any kind of signs of it in mm. the city itself. And people didn't really talk about it, at least people mm. were around me. So I did a bit of scratching around. I was talking to my friends about it, like, you know, what do you know about this? You know, this really happened. And most of my Japanese friends only kind of knew that, you know, it was a line in a in a junior high school textbook right. you know march 10th 1945 us bombed tokyo maybe it had the number of dead but that mm. was it for most students so they didn't know any other thing except for the date and maybe the death toll and so this this idea that the single greatest aerial attack in human history uh was not anything more than like a footnote in a in a textbook mm. this is something i really couldn't understand and and because Tokyo was my city too like I live here and I lived here mm. I just wanted you know I just couldn't comprehend this I just wanted to understand why this story was kind of missing from the identity of the place and the people mm. and so that was kind of my starting point just wanting to understand <laughs> why mm. And, yeah. but, you know, like a lot of people might have gone, I want to understand why. OK, I'll I'll maybe like read some books about it. Uh, but you made a full feature film. So how, how did that? How did it go from I want to understand why it's not being recognized, why it's not being to, to like I'm and I'll tell this story? Well, <laughs> at university, I studied I started in a kind of BA, mm. Bachelor of Arts and I did a filmmaking subject as an elective. I don't know if people in other countries use that term, but something you can choose that's not related to your major. You know, we got to make these little short film projects mm. and I fell in love with it. And so after I graduated from university, like I, I've never been a very kind of uh, a person that's good at planning or I've never been very disciplined. So I just kind of drifted along through my 20s. And probably I was in, uh, I mean, I did, I made a short, a few short films and stuff, but I think yeah. by the time I knew, uh, found out about the firebombing, I think I was in my uh, very late thirties and, you know, I started to become interested and research it. And um, I didn't really know if I was going to make a feature film, but I think I was also approaching that age where I was 
thinking, oh, I need to really do something with mm. my life, something mm. that I really want to do. And around that time, uh, my father died of cancer. I came out of a long-term relationship. I think it was 11 years. Mm. And uh, so that put things on, on, on hold for a moment. But I think when I, when I kind of was recovering from those things, I just had to, to kind of step up to the plate to use a baseball <laughs> metaphor. I, you know, I had to, I had to do something. I had to do something significant because I was also thinking like at that age, around, around 40, you know, my dad had, you know, four kids. Uh, he owned a home um, and I had like nothing comparable to that. Um, and it kind of made me, you know, get my shit together <laughs> right. a little bit. Yeah. So I think that was, that really steeled me to kind of do something. Yeah. But it was uh, it was mortifying the idea of making a feature film, and particularly in Japan, mm. um, without you know, like I was working with a producer in Australia, and of course I was collaborating with people here, but kind of driving the project from Japan and doing a lot of things in Japanese, mm. which were very very hard. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I was kind of. Uh, trying things slightly outside or of my skill set or above, you know, my Japanese level, things like that. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of how it got started. And once it gets started, you can't stop. Right. And what I mean by that is you can't, I couldn't, I couldn't have lived with myself if I stopped, if I gave up, that would have been devastating. So mm. I'm not sure if that was, no, that was a where really, you really no, beautiful answer. Beautiful answer. I, I, going to take away that one about sometimes there's those catalysts in life that like realization that yeah I've got to get my shit together and and step up like this like the learning that comes out from that loss and then also what you said about doing a lot of things outside of your skill set I was just talking to a client yesterday and they were talking about a role in a a, a corporate role and they were like what's the difference between being ready soon and ready now and I think it's like you you don't get that skill set until you do it so you did it obviously it's not to say yes it was all smooth and perfect and there were of course like many challenges but just having that awareness that oh this is a big stretch like doing this kind of meaningful work is gonna stretch me and then when you said I would have been devastated if uh, I hadn't finished it I got like proper goosebumps and um, <laughs> I was just thinking about stories, like the the, the characters, the, well, they're people, they're real people uh, and their lives and like what a just beautiful, I can't even think of what the word is, homage, sounds a bit pretentious, but it's, it's not that, like the honouring of their life and their stories. And I feel like you really felt that like I have to I have to finish this like once you've done the first interview you can't not stop yeah actually I mean I was kind of talking on a personal level uh <laughs> you know in terms of my, my own development yeah. but I mean right. I, yeah I, I think like just maybe people don't have a lot of context for this but like these survivors in uh in Tokyo uh for a long time they've been for decades mm. going back to the, the late 60s and 70s People have been um, campaigning for the city to to properly memorialize 
um, yeah. what happened uh, mm. because there's not really anything to show people what happened. There's no real purpose-built sites of memory or yeah. anything like that. So, yeah, for decades, these now elderly people, mm. you know, have been campaigning and asking the government to do something to no avail. And I think when you look at these old people, these very small, delicate old people who have this incredible resilience mm. and incredible, I guess, ikigai, right, yeah. right through until the end of their lives, you know, knowing that if they don't kind of do something to pass on memory or or to force the city to, to leave something behind, then the memory of what happened is going to fade away. So I think those, as you said, like those people are incredibly uh, strong, mm. uh, inspiring, and they might be physically frail, but they've got they've got something. I mean, imagine if experiencing something like they went through, yeah. like this kind of turning point in your life, and after, from that day, you know, it, things will never be the same. You you know, you were a, a changed person. You know, everything was redefined by that experience. So, yeah, having started to film with them. I also couldn't let them down, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm a bit I'm a bit overcome. Um and I, I I know that silence is great on the podcast medium. So I'm I'm speaking to fill time, but I just want you to know that those words really touched me um a lot. And we will have like all the links for uh the site so that people who are interested can watch the film and I really really strongly recommend people it's just it's beautifully shot and it's shocking and moving and yeah you just get to see these stories of this amazing deep resilience and passion and as you say like ikigai these people are just like fighting to get this recognition for their loved ones for their communities it's beautiful beautiful work thank you and I'll just if I if I can yeah. <laughs> just add one thing to that. I mean, I'd be happy if people anywhere would watch it. But I mean, if you live in or around Tokyo, you know, this is also, you know, it's our story. It's it's part of the fabric of the city we live in. And I think it has, you know, special resonance for for people that call Tokyo home. You know, it if and if you don't know about this, I think watching the film might add a dimension to the place that yeah. you didn't perhaps understand before. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to, you know, go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to understand the brutalities of war. It's like literally in the haunted toilets. Uh, well, yeah. You know, it is. And, and um, sending <laughs> for those listeners outside of Japan, Tokyo schools send kids uh, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to learn about the war. And in a way, that's part of the whitewashing of what happened here. Mm. You know, the idea that we need to send people away when, in fact, the worst atrocities, you know, happened right here yeah. uh, in our neighbourhoods and on our doorsteps. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. it would lead to those awkward things. Well, why don't we have a, a big memorial just for these victims in Tokyo and it's yeah, hidden exactly. at the back of a shrine yeah. in the corner yeah. and there's no list of the, yeah, all of these these things are, are covered in uh, in beautiful detail in your film. Oh my goodness. 
when they showed the list, the the scroll on the floor. Mm. I was glad for. I was glad for <laughs> my, uh, my handkerchief. Is, yeah, my daughter a... was looking at me going. I yeah. think what Jennifer's you're referring to is, yeah, there's one neighbourhood that, yeah. just one neighbourhood that kept a, a list of the, recorded the names of the the dead in yeah. their neighbourhood. And it was about 800 people, mm. you know, in a neighbourhood of 2,000. Yeah. Um, so you can see on a neighbourhood scale what, what that meant. But when you look along the list, you see the same surname, mm. you know, sometimes 10 or 15 in a row, which meant, you know, multi-generations of one family were just wiped out, oh. you know? Yeah. yeah. So. <sighs> and on that note, let's shift gears. Because there are, there are, this was seven years of your life. And when we were talking um, last week about, you know, what, what should we talk about on the podcast? You were saying that, so now that the film is out there, it's had some release. Like, of course, you're still doing, um uh, promotional work and things, but it's kind of, you know, the, the baby has flown the nest. And yeah. um, you said a really uh, powerful expression to me and that, that resonated and you said, like, it just has left this void to fill. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, like, where you are right now as you think about, you know, you've you've made this amazing, meaningful work. It's something tangible. Uh, it's something impacting people, honoring people, all of these things. So you have something. I know you said before, like I compared with my dad and da 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 da. da. Like you have, you have mm. left, created a really, really beautiful thing in the world. But a little bit, it's kind of done, right? Still there. Oh, it's done. Yeah. It's done. So, and of course, people say, so what's next? Are you going to make another film? Uh, it's a bit like if you have a baby, as soon as you have a baby, you say, you going to have another baby? Like, just to let you know, as a parent, like, I'm sure your dad was getting that question. <laughs> like, are you going to have a fifth? Four kids, he said, right? Are you going to yeah. have another one? Uh, so, yeah, so what's, where Where are you now? Well, yeah, I think, yeah, all of those things that you just said. I mean, look, I, I have a, a little day job, but I mean, for seven years, making the film was, you know, my reason for getting out of bed mm. and, there were so many things to do. It was squeezed into every bit of my life, yeah. mornings, nights, weekends. Mm. And uh, when that was finished, it, you know, left, I think, not only a, um, a physical void in terms of, you know, time, a temporal void, I suppose, but I mean, void. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like, I kind of looked around me and I, and I think at that time I was 46, seven. Mm. And I was like, well, where am I? Who am I? What am I going to do now? And I think also, you know, that that period of making was so intense that you know, I'm, I'm single. You know, I wasn't able to kind of start a relationship in that time. Um, I think definitely, you know, I wasn't able to pay so much attention to friendships in that mm. time. And so I kind of came out of it feeling good uh, feeling a sense of achievement but yeah after was really quite a strong sense of being lost I mean I, mm -hmm. I was lost and I yeah. really getting to this question of like well one needs to have meaning in one's life what is my life going to mean 
in after this. I don't know how else to put it, but yeah. <laughs> so the the feeling of the feeling of being lost was uh, not good at all, um, and that was a few months. But uh, the the next step was kind of, well, I need to search for meaning. You know? Yeah, I need to mm. find something to care about deeply or to to throw my energy into next. Yeah. We'll we'll get onto that but, in a yeah, moment, but yeah. I, I just want to to reflect that sense of it's something that when we don't talk about enough, I think this idea of when something finishes and we have this great achievement, and then there is this pause. There's a a process in systems coaching called myth change, um, and it's really powerful to go. The story, you know, so you were the filmmaker, you were you were working on this, you were editing all of those hours, and then now you're a new character and you're not the filmmaker anymore. But like what <laughs> but what what what's this new myth? What's this new story? What's the new origin that's coming? And we often don't have a process to, you know, be be grateful for what happened, to to grieve what we're losing from it. And then to kind of move into the next. And this, like, I mean, I, I run this with, at one level, like with corporate teams that have had an organizational change. It's always like, well, your org's changed. Uh, okay, so now let's look to the future. And there's no process to say, well, I quite miss that about the old org. And yeah, that was, a, you know, like the fact that uh, I don't have any relationships because I had no time for anything. Yeah, that that kind of sucked, actually. So I'm, I'm glad that I've maybe got this time back, right? You can kind of pick and choose but what do I want to carry forward? Just like having having that process and knowing that it's going to happen. You know, it's maybe the thing that like now you 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 look back on that that the, that period of time, you go, yeah, of course that was going to happen. Yeah, it was like a massive change in my life. It was a massive transition. Of course I was going to feel crappy for, for some time. Totally natural. But when you're in it, you're sort of like, what's wrong with me? Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd had it before, maybe for small projects like mm. short films, but yeah. they're they're just a matter of months from beginning to end. I think right. it's when it spans years, it's yeah, it's, almost a decade, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't um, like a light, fluffy thing that you were doing either, right? It's like uh, the stories yeah. that you had to carry and the stories you had to hold, and as you talked about, like the I can't give up on this thing. Yeah, it's it's a all-consuming, yeah. yeah. And I think also actually one one part of that is that, you know, when it was released last year in, in Tokyo and it was mm. showing it in cinemas in Tokyo, I could finally see the result of, of it, which was incredible to see audiences come and be moved and then come and speak to me afterwards uh, of all ages from, mm. from 20s, to their uh, 80s or 90s and you know some non-japanese people but also mm. many 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 japanese people and many people from tokyo so that kind of helped ease the transition out of the process uh, of, of maybe letting go like but i think i think one thing that I, i'm not sure if i'll make another film or not because you know the process was so long and making a low budget relatively low budget film means you've got to do so much yourself and i think the big problem for me while films are very 
can connect with audiences very strongly, can say something very complex through storytelling. It's that they just take so damn long to make. To reach an audience is, you know, it's it's a very indirect process. Mm. And I think more and more I feel like I want to to be involved more directly with people or or an a, or to do actions that have, you know, a result that comes much much more directly or right. quickly. Yeah. Um yeah. So not feeling so, that huge, huge gap, but like whether it's a time lag or like the emotional gap between what you do and the and the impact of what you're working. It, that's exactly what yeah. I wanted to say. Yes. <laughs> I just reframed it. That's all. Good. Uh, summarize, summarized your, yeah. your, your words. I, I'm glad that I captured it. That makes me very happy. So there's a reminder also to everyone to um, when someone you know does something, tell them that it moved you. Tell them that it had an impact. Like that's a very important gift that you can give to someone. Oh, I've got something else to say about this. Ooh. When I first started going to film school, like you know, when you sh- when you show film things that you make, it doesn't have to be films, whatever you're doing, uh, and people are like, ah, oh, interesting, and they feel like they've got to say something positive, uh, and it's a very uncomfortable moment sometimes if they didn't really get it or if they didn't see anything <laughs> positive. But um, like as you said, I think it's really important to say something, and I honestly think saying something honest that's even possibly not positive mm. might be a good thing. I think to to show your engagement, the way in which you're engaged or provoked to the mm. maker, I think is really an important thing. You know, after spending so long with a project. The, the person that made it knows how they feel about it. They have that, that relationship's really important. So uh, the reaction of audiences, of course, is very important, but people don't need like um, fake praise or, or no. whatever. Yeah. yeah like I'd rather people tell me how it moved them or why it didn't move them mm. or like, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think that feedback loop is that is important for yeah. for the for the person that made something yeah. or did something. I, and it reminds me, I've, I've been talking with quite a few uh, coaching clients recently about praise and criticism. People talk about it from a confidence perspective, and uh, a coach called Tara Moore has a, a great uh, perspective on like unhooking from both praise and criticism, and the idea that you know all that any feedback tells you is about that person's values. So whether it's praise or criticism that says like how it didn't move, it just tells you what they, what they value. It doesn't tell you anything about you. It doesn't really tell you anything about your work. Um, But it just tells them that, for example, this person values this type of editing or this person values uh, these types of, you know, um, aesthetics. Mm. It's just about them and it's nothing about you. And I think that's a, an interesting uh, perspective as a creator, right? Because it's very vulnerable, like putting your work out into the world as well. But yeah, it doesn't have yeah. to be. It doesn't actually have to be if you can unhook. Oh, uh, yeah. I think that's interesting. I think in a way, a filmmaker or a artist, I, I, I want to be uh, vulnerable in the process, mm. though. Uh, mm. I think 
maybe if you're doing a job for hire, it might be different. But like you know, I nurtured this project along with my producer uh, from the very beginning, and everything mm. happened because we, you know, drove it forward. So yeah. there's a way in which it's it's not separable from mm. uh, from me, me as a person. Yes, but this is me. Yeah, but yeah. You know, I wasn't collecting. Uh, I wasn't collecting a paycheck or something. Like I'm, I'm there, and 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 the film is a documentary about the firebombing, but it's also a a documentary of me through those seven years. Mm. You know, where I was, what I was doing, who I was speaking to, how I felt. That's all there for me. You yes. can't see that necessarily. Yeah, the audience can't see it, but for me, that's all. You know, every frame is kind of dripping with. Hidden, hidden memory, parts of Adrian. Yeah. Um, you you have a to yeah, yeah. yeah, totally different um perspective on that. Um, but I'm I'm conscious of time and I want to move into where you are now and um and the future. You're feeling a call. You're feeling a nagging voice. Tell us about this emerging essence which is coming through for you right now. <laughs> so thing I just said a couple of minutes ago about wanting to do something with a more direct impact mm. I think is part of this but I remember when I was a kid and uh you know in the 80s and we started to hear on the you know in the news uh about the greenhouse effect and, mm. and um global warming and things like this yeah. you know this is four decades ago and at, at that time these these were kind of like scientific observations or, you know, uh, mm. predictions about what was going to happen. But now we can see these effects of planetary heating, insane weather all around us every day. Um, and we also know the cause of it, um, you know, CO2 emissions from human activity. And uh, in my day job as a, as a, a, a teacher to Japanese business people, just the last year or so, I've realized that I'm teaching a lot of people involved in in basically dirty energy, in, in coal, oil, gas projects. And, uh, you know, I've been increasingly uncomfortable with this. And, it, and I definitely know that if, you know, teenage me saw what I was doing, he definitely wouldn't approve and I want to hold on to those values that I had mm. as a kid. You know, I think in adult life, we our values are always compromised by, by other realities, by the fact that we're getting paid to do a job, by, you know, nothing being exactly black and white. Um, but through all those processes, I think we often struggle to hold on to what what we kind of knew was right, or good right. when we were younger. So now that I'm, you know, on the cusp of a a new, a, a big zero, one of those big zero birthdays uh, this year, so it's a kind of, that's a turning that's... point. It feels like a turning point. Mm. Yeah, I've just been thinking more and more that I want to get involved in some kind of positive action to flash forward. Like I know that, it, you know, hopefully at a ripe old age, on my deathbed, if I look back to this age, I think I will, at this time, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I would be asking myself, what could I have done or mm. why didn't I do more 
um, because you know the effects of, of of climate change are going to be much worse in a few decades. So, so I I don't know where where this is going yet, mm. but I've kind of fallen in love with the idea of doing something or fall in love with this issue mm. the same way I fell in love with the firebombing or doing something about that. It, it's kind of early days. Yeah. I don't really have anything concrete to say, but it's a, it's, it's, it feels like, a, you know, I'm on the cusp of working out where, where to put my energy. I just want everyone who is listening or watching to reflect on Adrian, the hesitation, the what's coming is like edginess of not quite knowing, but this feeling there's something coming. And I think this is just so recognizable and it's like part of this process of like, where is my meaning coming from? And you, you, something is starting to emerge and just kind of being, being, open to it and then having that i love that you've like had that flash forward and you've had the flashback right right like that teenage judgmental teenage you because they can't <laughs> do anything wrong teenagers are often absolute dickheads but anyway different conversation <laughs> um but you know like that righteousness yeah of your teenage self who sees everything in actually like the clarity of that, like black and white perspective. Yeah. There is something that's like really pure and really meaningful in it as well. Like we, yeah. we have all these grays, right, of adulthood, of paying yeah. bills and being in a capitalist society. And yeah, we, we have to make compromises. But sometimes that 14 year old self is like, do you really? Really? Bad? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and but, certainly for, I mean, I think in all of us, that 14-year-old self is there. It never goes away, but it gets harder to see that person as mm. you get older, I think. Yeah. Also, I've just noticed, uh, those of you who can't see these images won't know, but as the sun's moved around through the course of this mm. chat, uh, the lighting uh <laughs> Oh, my face has got increasingly dramatic. Yes, it is. High, high contrast. Wow. So yeah. It fits with what we're talking about. Yeah. So as a filmmaker, how are you how are you going to use this lighting? What's the story that you want it to tell? <laughs> well, it's just mirroring our conversation. But yeah, I think just to pick up on what you said, I've really got no clue what I'm going to do. And I think only the sense... I mean, right now I'm just kind of trying to, you know, educate myself mm. and, and, and read as deeply as I can to understand the, the issues as best as I can and, and also in order to work out where my energy might be best spent. Right. I mean, like, I don't know, maybe it will be a film. Maybe that is the best way um, or maybe it might be something completely different. But I want to, the sense is I want to be useful. Mm. that's the feeling I guess at this point yeah. in my life I, I want to be useful to others yes and that is like it's right back to one of the like foundational um parts of the Ikigai 9 framework that talks about uh I think that I have impact on someone or something I you know the like the world needs me and having that desire to contribute 
um, is, is really, really important. But also I'm getting this sense of you as well, like this excitement to like learn new things and to discover and to, and that's like a big driver of Ikigai as well, to like want to learn, to start something yeah. new. So I think you're really like, although I think in the West, when we talk about Ikigai, there's a lot of focus on, you know, the Venn diagram and it's this point and you're in this, but actually I think I'm getting chills as I say this, um, what you're experiencing right now is a big sense of having a life which is meaningful, the actual exploration of it. Uh, that meaning in the exploration itself? Yes, yes, because you're feeling this like, I really want to be useful, I want to have impact, I want to contribute. So I'm like, I know that that's coming for me. And then like, I'm doing all of this research, I'm trying to find out about it. So you're like, excited, like having that, like looking forward. Um, yeah. Yeah. These are all like senses of like uh, the icky ickiness, like the liveliness yeah. of icky guy, <laughs> uh, not yeah. like the frustration and giving up and, oh, you know, the, like it's too big for me to handle. I can't do anything. Um, yeah. You're in this place of, of opportunity and possibility. So I just really want to honor that. Oh, no. Yeah. And I think yeah. once you find that, once you go through that process of discovery, then there's a very important period in which that kind of plays itself out. But mm. but it's the yeah, the as you said, the ickiness of it is <laughs> is is going through that process of change. Ah, you're saying ickiness like the English ickiness, like the no, sticky, no, no, sticky, no. or the no, icky no, I, icky. Which <laughs> I just as you heard I it said, I was like the I K I. Like, yeah. icky, icky. I thought, oh, that's another way, though, of like the ickiness. There is actually an ickiness in this discovery moment because it, it is a bit kind of, oh, what do I do? And edgy and sticky. So, well, oh, we just made a what, new meaning of icky guy. If, if that's what you got, that's what I meant. That's what I intended. <laughs> that's what we'll take away. We'll take yeah. away from that. So, if anyone has ideas and inspiration from Adrian based on what you've heard from today as to how he can be most useful in this existential crisis that the world, the humanity is facing, make it big again. Yeah, drop him a line. All his contact details will be in the um, show notes down below for those on YouTube. I have two questions, final questions to ask you, which I ask to all guests as we mm. begin to wrap up. So the first question is, what is a question that I haven't asked that I should have asked you? Or you wish I'd asked you, wish I had asked you. Yeah. I'm enjoying the put put on the spotness of this uh, <laughs> moment. Um, one thing that I, going through this period of discovery, I'm trying to work out is partly what, you know, what do I really love doing? And I'm also trying to look for um, those things. What is it about filmmaking that I love, documentary filmmaking? What is it about teaching? Uh, and, you know, I write too. So what is it about mm. writing? And I think what connects all these things? And I think for me it's um, basically listening. I think that's something that good teachers mm. need to do and and absolutely good filmmakers need to do. That process of listening is so important for me. And I think the other thing is mm, helping to build bridges between things, between people who have different ideas uh, or, um, you know, between the, the present and the past. Mm. Um, 
So I think that's maybe that's what I'm kind of good at or what I love doing. And so when it comes into this new action, I guess that's a kind of maybe base that mm. maybe my job is just to be a listener and in whatever form that that takes. That's that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> and how does that feel? How does that feel to to say that about like being maybe my job is to be a listener? Well, I I know that because I think em empathy is one of my things that kind of comes naturally for me but as I say it there's still a lot of uncertainty because I don't mm. know in what way that's going to play out in the next chapter um it just seems to be what I'm naturally good at or yes. drawn to yeah mm. yeah and so you'll be bringing that I like that idea of like bringing that as the base um you also talked about like so what you're naturally good at, you, I feel like we're going into Venn diagram zone here. Like oh, yeah, I know. I know. I'm Sorry. like, oh, hang on. No, no, it's fine. It's fine because it is a very useful coaching tool. But you talked about like I've fallen in love with this problem. Like it's it's uh, getting that emotion, what the world needs for sure. And we'd be paid for. We'll work on that bit, right? That's uh, not such the purest icky guy, but um, we're still a capitalist society. So, yeah. We need to eat. I don't even know if I'll be paid. I'm not sure yeah. yet. Yeah. I mean, if I end up, you know, blowing up pipelines or something, then I probably won't be paid. <laughs> not that no. I'm going to do that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Activism comes in all different all, forms. All shapes. And <laughs> all sizes. shapes and yeah. sizes, different forms. Uh, there we go. Um, and a final question, which is yes. so from our conversation today. What is one thing that you would like listeners of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai to take away with them? I'd like to end by kind of paraphrasing Greta Thunberg. Is that how you pronounce it? I never so, know how I to pronounce so, yeah. her surname. So. Yeah. A few years ago when when we started to hear about her, um, she was criticizing, you know, the adults in the room for, mm. for not doing enough uh, about this great existential crisis uh, that, you know, climate change or the climate crisis um and i you know never really feeling like an adult in the room was like yeah yeah fuck those guys um but only a few weeks ago i realized oh she's talking to me too i don't get a free pass here um i'm not a politician i'm not running a corporation but i'm an adult in the in the room and i yeah. think all of us are <laughs> mm. I guess that's my final thing. I'm really curious about, you know, what any of us can do, how any of us can be useful. And I, I think it's probably more than we think. It sounded like I was going to say something more, but because of my intonation, but that's uh, that was the end of my sentence. <laughs> Classic Australian upspeak at the end. Yeah, yes, there you go. Many series nice, of Neighbours nice. and Home and Away. But, uh, yeah, so it's time for us all to yeah, be, be the adult in the room. This is not yeah. speaking to someone else, speaking to us. So if you're listening to this, you probably are an adult in the room. Um, exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for a very deep and uh, impactful conversation. I really appreciate your vulnerability to share that edginess of this discovery uh, place that you're in and sort of role modeling what, what it's like. Um, but also what those, you know, this emergence can bring. It's like full of possibility. Um, and I'm sure that you're 
going to start something and do something and, and and move into this like next stage of creation for you and and just thanks again for um paper city which is just an amazing work and i'm always cheering it on and i strongly strongly recommend everyone to watch it wherever you can so thank in you so tokyo, much for joining much. us <laughs> tokyo very much so yes yeah. this is this is in as you say like it's 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 in every relationship every part of the city is impacted and we just it's hidden let's let's reveal reveal it a little more thank you so much adrian have a wonderful day you're you're less uh, excitingly lit right now so you've maybe oh no there you are you're back into stark contrast so let's see the before after uh that happens thank you so much thank you it's a pleasure talking to you Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you found something you could take away from the episode to help you find your own Ikigai and integrate it into your daily life. And I'd love to hear exactly what resonated with you. So pop over to see me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page. You can find the links in the show notes below. And let me know what you thought was the most important takeaway from the podcast today. And sharing is caring. So feel free to share this episode with one of your friends who you think could benefit from hearing about living a life of purpose. Looking forward to see you on the next episode of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai.